Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. Uh, so Maggie and I are here today to discuss episode five, follow up on episode five, uh, anticipate episode six. There's still a lot to discuss about episode five, I know. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we're some other ideas and, and uh, uh, issues that have come up or questions that we've already been asked uh, that uh, I'm really interested to uh, uh, to discuss. So um, I would. All right. Hang on a second. There we go. I just realized I forgot something. OK, there we go. I was just worried that there wasn't any chat yet. I was like, we're oh, yeah. on. No, right? we're good. Well, it always <laughs> takes we a little while for notifications to go out and everything and folks to come in. All right. Ahoy, pixel riffs. Yeah, Davin is Maggie complimenting you on your uh, insight. Your segment was really particularly cool this week. Lots of people have been commenting on that. Can I, can I just give you a behind the scenes moment of why <laughs> it was so much better? Because I filmed it seven times. Oh man. <laughs> it took like, I mean, I don't have the setup Corey has. I'm just, I'm using a basic camera and stuff and it just would not capture. And one of them captured half and one of them captured the first third. So I did it so many times guys that, yeah. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this week too. Cause I feel like this was the first week that I actually delved into some film language. We've just been talking about concepts before this. So it was really fun to do like a scene read, which I haven't done in so long. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, getting the cobwebs off my brain, but also like digging into something cool like that. And yeah, it was lovely. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, we, thanks to everyone who's, uh, I'm really glad people have been enjoying Rings and Realms. We have a, uh, a yeah. really fun and growing audience there, and that's been uh, that's been that's been good. I'm particularly I'm always happy to see the people who um, uh, comment on how like refreshing it is to watch a show like ours in the midst of all of the like controversy and negativity. Um, and it really is. I mean, it's just like to me, it's like an illustration of sort of the point. It's not the point of like. You know, people always want to bring it, break things down to like either you're praising bad. the show or you're condemning the show, right? Like yeah. those are the only two options um, yep. that you can do. And it's like, no, no, actually, you know, where the fun is, <laughs> is just discussing, just analyzing, just like, let's look at it and let's think about it. Um, and you don't, it's okay. You don't have to think like, is yeah. this a great show? Is this a not great show? It doesn't matter. Let's like think about what's there. And there is so much fun. There is so much, um, uh, um, I don't know, like re re relief from pressure in that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I, I'm really like I'm enjoying the process, but I have to admit too that I'm also finding it a nice challenge because so much of what I feel like we do is review often in our lives, right? Like, did you right. like that movie? Did you not? But right. it's it's almost refreshing to not have to engage in that question. That's the only question everybody's asking me. Do you like it? I couldn't tell you because I'm really <laughs> enjoying the analysis. So like, you know, I, I don't want to join the voice of the masses that are reacting. I really like that we are just providing analysis. And the thing I'm really enjoying about our comments too is just how thoughtful so many of them are. So I think we're gonna share one shortly that we had today, yes. but so thoughtful in terms of like helping us kind of figure out what we wanna talk about and what you guys are confused about. And I even messaged Corey this week being like, this might have been the episode that lost me because I struggled this week with a whole load of stuff. And I'm fine to admit that to you guys. Like, I don't want it to seem all roses. Like there's stuff I'm struggling with with this show and there's stuff I'm finding fascinating and well done and all this, everything in between. 
So it was so nice to have Corey's segment because we talk through it before he films it, but I don't get the two hours until you guys do. So it was so nice to like have that and be like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, you know? Yeah. So yeah, yeah I really and, appreciate that. And the one thing I would say, I would sort of remind people of, of course, um, don't mistake my analysis for inside information. I'm not telling you I know this stuff is true. <laughs> I'm saying, here's the picture that I'm seeing, right? Here are the main options that I'm seeing. Um, and, and I do think, like, I, I, I know that in episode five, in my discussion of episode five, I was really kind of, there, there was a lot, I was kind of putting a lot out there, right? I mean, I said there were co sort of two primary readings that I can see of the show. One is that, um, you know, this is all this is all a deception in the ways that I was discussing. And the other is that the, the show has really left the rails in some ways um, and has now deviated from Tolkien's um, from Tolkien's world in ways that it really has not done to this point. Um, and I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I still think that option one is more likely uh, than option two, because it would be very strange to me. Uh, it would be very strange to me that they would be as consistent as they've been in um, with Tolkien's themes and world. And then all of a sudden in episode five, um, go off in so many yeah. different, you know, in, in so many different ways. Um, and there are some, I've seen some, go, sorry, go ahead. Like, I guess the, I love that perspective and that made a lot of sense and I love all the chat about Elrond's skeptical face. I should yeah. also give a disclaimer. There's a dog under the sofa under me. <laughs> so if you hear the whining, it's Merlin. Don't worry, he's here. Right. Um, he may make a... But, he may make a, a... Merlin tends to make more forceful appearances than my dog does. Uh, oh, yeah. So, Merlin, yeah. Does, Merlin makes himself known blatantly, <laughs> so you might see him. But um, my question is, like, I don't know your thoughts on casual viewers. Like... Will they put in the time? Do they need to put in the time? Like, right. that's the line I'm I'm struggling with. Like, it shouldn't take a two-hour explanatory show of Rings and Realms for me to understand what's going on. But I feel like that's for us, right? That's for the right. Tolkien people. If you don't know the lore, is it making sense? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I, as I said in the show, like, I don't, I, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I, I, I suspect that there's some level of confusion from everybody. I think that episode five was just a confusing show. But I do think it's more acute. Like, the, because the, the where the confusion is coming from, where I hear it coming from, uh, it's primarily based on what we know about Tolkien. It isn't like, um, what exactly were they saying, but rather... How could they have been saying that? You know, given the you know what we know, like wh how could Gilgalad be saying that? How could sorry, Gilgalad? I've been doing better. I've been I've been I'm still a work in process in progress. It's been but... good though. This past week has been like a real turning point. I don't know if I've messed I, it up once, and I've only heard you do it once or twice. I've, so. I've, I've been I've been trying Go hard. Team. I've been trying hard. See, Benjamin <laughs> Walker interviewing Benjamin Walker might be a turning point in my in my Gilgalad you pronunciation talk to Gilgalad, career. You change your tone exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. But anyway, so like th th there have been all kinds of there have been there have been all kinds of um, you know uh, sort of questions with that. But again, they seem to be mostly based on what we already know um, from Tolkien. Like that was really that was really that was really the problem. So we'll see. But again, so I, I keep in mind like I'm not what I am striving to do 
um, is retain the kind of analytic objectivity that I think is so important when doing analysis like this. And what I mean by that, what I mean by objectivity is to try to be open to like to follow where the data leads, right? Um, not to like have theories and adopt theories and then like try, because you can always do that, right? I mean, I, I love every week, it seems, right? Like whenever Halbrand is on screen, the people who are convinced that Sauron is Halbrand are like, well, like everything he said just like proves like it's now more obvious than ever that how brand is Sauron because well, you can always do that. Like you can always find evidence to support your thesis. Like that's always true. Um, so I'm trying as much as I can. I mean, you guys, I mean, I've not been shy about telling you what my interpretations are, that I don't think Halbrand is Sauron, that I do think the stranger is a blue wizard, and that, um, you know, I think that Anatar is already an Eregian. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to just be wishy-washy about it, Like, but at the same time, I want to be open to where the data is actually leading. So, like, what I've said about episode five, like, I might change my mind, you know, as things as we see more things revealed over the next few episodes, like I'm going to be, I'm, you know, every week I'm going to be trying to sort of evaluate and to reevaluate that. Um, and, and we'll see, you know, we'll see what I think about this as, uh, um, as we, as we go. But um, anyway, um, so that'll be, that'll be cool. One discussion we had at Mountain Moot, actually, um, we had, we had several fun, long, fun discussions of the Rings of Power um, at Mountain Moot this past weekend out in Denver. And um, one of the theories that I came away from Mountain Moot, well, I don't say 100% convinced by, but uh, much more interested in than I had been before, is um, I think that I have been sort of assuming. But in retrospect, I'm like, I don't think there's actually any data behind it. I think it's been an assumption on my part. One of the things that I've been assuming that we would see is like Sauron's lieutenants. Basically, Sauron doing stuff like the Rings of Power plan, the Anatar plan, right? Like sooner or later, we were going to get there. Um, clearly, because, you know, the Rings of Power going to actually be, form, be forged. So like that, you know, that I've been expecting. But that he would also be like pushing things forward in other places to, so that his big scheme is ready so that when the Rings of Power are forged, he can retire back to Mordor, which will have been set in place, you know. But anyway, so I, that, that's what I've been expecting. Um, so I think I've been quick to assume that Adar is one of Sauron's lieutenants, like that's been kind of a almost really more of a premise than a conclusion of mine. And that's the thing that I was sort of realizing this week, uh, as there were a couple people at Mountain Moot who were arguing forcibly that um, Adar is, there's no reason to think that Adar is necessarily serving Sauron. And indeed, his reaction to being called mm. Sauron by Waldrig could be taken as evidence that he is in fact himself anti-Sauron, that he's a rival to Sauron rather than, um, yeah, like uh, rather than a servant of Sauron. Yeah. 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 And I, I, the more we were talking about that, the more, um, the more I was like, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. Like I, it was that, that my conclusions about that really do come more from an initial premise of my own than from, than from Well, and I still don't feel strongly about one or the other. It's more about being open to that as an option, you know, right. it's like, right. yeah, I could see that too. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. As uh, uh, Fruit Chu says, I think Adar is serving Sauron. Whether Adar is aware of that is a different question. Uh, that's that's a, it's, it's a really good way of thinking about it. I think that's probably that's probably right. Um, 
But yeah, um, Druid's Fire too. While Sauron is the big bad, there's other evils in the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. And some of them. He's the big bad. He's not the only bad. Right. Exactly. And Sauron might be, um, especially in these relatively early stages. Right. Sauron might uh, be demonstrating his, you know, skill at you know planning and rising to power, um, not at delegation but at manipulation of others. Like, there are other evil powers in the world that are trying to make their own thing, and Sauron is going to uh, not just control them, necessarily, from the beginning, but but mm-hmm. make use of them, right? Even if they uh, don't realize that. So, yeah, like, I, and what I'm saying is that would work just as well. I think that, that, could, be, that could be really powerful. So, um, uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. Darren says, I think there will be competition over who becomes Morgoth's successor. Uh, right, right. And I agree, <laughs> Darren, I do agree. The smart money is on Sauron uh, in, that, in, in that struggle. But sure, sure. I think that that's... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I've, as I say, as we were talking it through, I was realizing that's really a line of thinking that I think I have not been um, mm-hmm. uh, sort of just open enough to. Um, and again, this is it's so. This is why you always have to be like vigilant. Like you always have to be, and it's one of the things that's so much fun, right? Um, is to to sort of recognize these things and the the constant reevaluation of all of your positions as your data pool increases, right? You can't just be, it's not an additive process, right? Every chunk of new data really leads you to have to evaluate the whole all over again. Um, Yeah. This feels like a really opportune time to share that tweet. Can we do that? Yeah. Yeah. Wish I'd pulled it up on the screen. You don't have it handy, do you? Oh, I might. I can read it, it, but I mean. Actually, yeah. Why, why don't you just read it quick, okay. rather than taking time? I'm a, to, I'm a visual yeah. person, so if you guys okay. need to find this, we can post it somewhere after. But um, it was a lovely tweet that was sent out to us today, and and I've, it's been shared and, and whatnot a lot. So this is Julian Invictus, um, Invincible One is his handle. And he wrote, the greatest disservice we do to ourselves as fans of Tolkien's work is to stand at the finish line of the narrative, yelling at the characters who are experiencing it as their story. I cannot stress enough how we are abusing our knowledge rather than letting it enrich our experience. I'm going to, one more time. The greatest disservice we do to ourselves as fans of Tolkien's work is to stand at the finish line of the narrative, yelling at the characters who are experiencing it as a story. I cannot stress enough how we are abusing our knowledge rather than letting it enrich our experience. Yes. I mean, think about like any parent who's trying to stand by and let their kid learn something. It's so hard to not like step in and just do it because you know how to do it. Like that's kind of the parallel I had here of here we are standing at the finish line saying, but that's not who you are. (laughs) Well, she's not yet. She's not yet. yet. Or they're not yet. You know? Yes. Yes. It is. Yeah. um, the application of that asking concept. For the link to that tweet. I'll find the link and I'll put it in the chat. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can put it in the maybe we can put it in the description of the episode as well. But <laughs> yeah, we'll do um, that too. Yeah, I mean the the. Um, oh, there we go. Druid's fire just posted it. Thanks, Druid's oh, fire. Thanks, um, anyway, yeah. So the. Um, uh, yeah, Druid's fire. If you there, you go. She posted that on YouTube as well. Awesome. You're oh, all over it. So anyway, like the way that this applies to Galadriel's character is really obvious, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, everybody sort of saying at the beginning, like, you know, 
like I really hate this. Like the the idea of Warrior Galadriel is such a is such a belittling of her character. So, yeah, because she has growth yet to go. She's gonna grow beyond that. Um, if you don't like Warrior Galadriel, I doubt she's gonna just be Warrior Galadriel at the end of the show. Um, let's give her a chance to go there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, and I think I also mentioned it in Rings and Realms, but like somebody pointed out, you know, where we are in the Lord of the Rings, the Jackson trilogy. Like, we've we've gotten to the pub and we've met Strider. Like, right. that's how far into the story we are. We know no context of anything. So, think of all the assumptions the Hobbits had as they left the Shire that were completely right. inaccurate because they didn't know the world yet. So, we're kind of in a similar situation. Yeah, yeah. And it also um, made me think of the pacing of any TV show, like. If you watch the first couple episodes of Friends, they're painful. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it takes a little while for like characters to get their groove. And we know they had a five season arc, but they hadn't written these voices yet. They hadn't written these dialogue. You know, there's so many yeah. factors about like story building and world building, character building to make it believable that they're still kind of getting their groove too. And no, not every show needs that. Some hit the ground running and are epic from episode one, but right. I'm okay to give it a little grace to be like, yeah, they're still finding their feet. Right, exactly. And as Highlander Winds points out, there are there are shows which, like you know, said, the first two seasons of yeah. Star Trek: The Next Generation weren't that great either. Yes, like th- that yeah. show is an excellent show. By the time you get to season five, at least, right? right? Like, I mean, <laughs> man, season five and six are phenomenal of that show. But you know, it's it takes a while. It takes a while. Um, yeah. And uh, and the the yeah. The kind of impatience. And we know this had a lot more development. We know this had a lot more funding. But they're also trying to plant Easter eggs for us while also providing a show that's satisfying to the casual viewer and seem to be walking that line okay. Right. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of plates spinning here. Yeah, for sure. No, I I agree. I I think that is such an important perspective. And it's not just about things like character development and story development. Um, It's also in, like, elements of the story as well, right? I mean, it's, um, even, um, even some of the assumptions that people make about chronology, right? Um, like that's not supposed to have, I, I don't know. I, like there are ways in which even some of that stuff is really kind of fitting into this, right? Like, yeah. you know, I know, uh, like basically think about what the assertion that lies behind, there's, there's an assertion that lies behind a lot of the chronological things, right? Like, that's not supposed to happen yet. That's supposed to have happened earlier. And there are some assumptions about, like, cause and effect and how these events are supposed to connect with each other, which, again, like, if we can just, like, hang on, like, we know what we know, right? And um, I think it's very likely that we're going to, we're going to get to the place where we know we're going to get to, right? We're going to see Numenor fall. We're going to see the Last Alliance and the final duel with Sauron and Mount Doom. Like, we know where we're headed, and I think we're going to get to where we're headed. And I think even that we're going to get, um, that when we get there, it's going to, you know, look like we sort of expect that it might look. My hope, though, is that it's going to be, um, when we get there, it's going to be a really powerful new experience because we will have this whole perspective uh, on the trajectory of each of these characters. Like, we don't know exactly what it meant to go Galad to fight on Mount Doom, right? Like that, you know, to fight and die on Mount Doom. How... um, 
you know, we, we, we have a few hints, right, as to how this is the culmination of what Gilgawad has been doing for thousands of years, right? But we have to guess at those. We just, like, Tolkien never wrote Gilgawad's story in that way. He never told us what was going on with him, what was motivating him, right? What he had been struggling with and, and how this, you know, was all playing out. Um, we'll get that, you know, we'll get, I yeah. mean, goodness, just thinking about Isildur and what we've seen from Isildur so far. Actually, like, low-key, Isildur is one of the characters I'm really interested in. Like, he's not one of the big ones, you know? And I, so I feel like I spend a lot of time focusing on Galadriel and, and you know, the other big, big characters. But the, the sort of character trajectory of Isildur is something that I'm really, really... That I'm watching with great interest. Um, mm-hmm. uh, especially, again, because I'm thinking about where... Isildur, I mean, I expect Isildur, of course to be, you know, like front and center, one of the, you know, like the Key central, players. most important character, yeah. you know, in the final scenes, in the final, in the final episode is going to be like the Isildur show, right? So how are we going to get there from, 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 yeah. from this guy? And I think we can begin to see some of the ways in which we, um, uh, uh, in which we see that moving forward. So anyway, I think it's really, um, it's really cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, okay, yeah. so what from episode five that you didn't get to cover in the two hours of Rings and Realms do you want to cover tonight? Ooh, okay. So there's one thing I was deliberately saving for Rings and Realms, which I should totally do. Um, so several people have commented on how admirably brief I was in my analysis of the poem. Um, and I, I was, I was, I did that on purpose. So first of all, again, another kind of behind the scenes thing. Um, my analysis of this is like the reverse Maggie of your behind the scenes thing. Um, my analysis of the song was done in one take and I had on purpose. I didn't prep it at all. Um, normally the record. Most of mine are usually that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the record. <laughs> right. So uh, usually my segments, I have, I have an outline that I'm working from and I have like, you know, this list of points that I want to make sure that I'm remembering to hit. So I have a teleprompter, which doesn't have t- you know, like prose on it, but it has like my outline so that I, I, I remember, uh, what things I'm supposed to go through. Um, and, and I've usually talked through those because of course that, you know, they're often preparing like the, you know, the wall behind me and stuff. So we talk about what, what pictures will be relevant to what I'm talking about and that kind of thing to put up and everything. Um, but anyway, the, when I did the song, I deliberately didn't prep, um, at all. Like I didn't even think I, I listened to the song a bunch of times. Right. So I spent like, like for instance, dr- driving into the studio, I spent the whole time like listening to the song over and over again. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, I, um, I, um, I didn't, I didn't prep what I was going to say about it. Like I, I knew the kind of general thing that I wanted to do. Um, but when I was talking my way through that, I had no idea where I was going. Like that was completely spontaneous, which I just like that. I love doing that. That's what I wanted to capture because that kind of, that's the kind of analysis that I love doing. So I was hoping it would work, uh, pretty well. And it, I I felt like it, I I felt like it worked well, but that was, I said that was almost, um, it was almost like an indulgence, uh, uh, like self-indulgence to like sort of give myself that time to just have fun with that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but 
I was deliberately deviating from my normal plan, um, which is like people know who like watch Exploring the Lord of the Rings and Mythgard Academy know my approach to reading poetry is like first I look at the sound, like look at the meter, the sound shape of the poem and, and how the rhythm goes so that we can see how that contributes to the meaning. And then we look at the we look at the 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 the, the word sounds, right? We look at the rhymes and alliteration and things like that again so we can begin to see how the like what kind of shapes are emerging in the poem and then I go through and I do the meaning so I kind of jumped straight to the meaning basically and I didn't do any of the other stuff even though in the <laughs> it was funny like right before no it was right after as soon as as soon as we cut on that scene I was like okay so I want everybody to know that this poem is an anapest and it's blowing my mind <laughs> and like <laughs> Ian and Greg and Ben were like Okay, that's uh-huh. duly noted, <laughs> right? But anyway, Just yeah, going... holy cow, right? So, um, it's not an iams. That's so. That's the the main thing I've come to unburden myself with today is that the poem is fundamentally anapestic in order. Now, it has iambic elements. Like most of the lines begin with an iambic foot. Okay, I'm sorry. The producer to me is like, we need a, a screen. A screen. I know. Not I just... iambic. Not iambic. Not not iambic. iambic. <laughs> I know, right? This just in the Hobbit song, the Harfoot song is is anapestic. Can you believe it? Oh, so man. no, it was at first I was like because I was I was like totally I was expecting like normal Hobbit meter, right? It's not normal Hobbit meter. It's related to it. The first foot and the last foot. There there are four feet per line. Um, so there's there's like four stresses per line. You generally, um, but. Uh, uh, and the first one and sometimes the last one are iambic, but the primary movement of the song is anapestic. Um, unstressed, unstressed, stress. Dun, 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 dun. Um, uh, I mean, you think about uh, how the song goes, right? Um, even like um, this wandering day, right? By itself, like this one, this wandering day. That's the typical, um, not all... I think not all those who wander or wander are lost. I am Anapest, Anapest, Anapest. That's a very typical line from that song. Um, not all those who wander or wander are lost. Um, it has a, 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 a very different feel to it um, than the regular Hobbit meter, which is iambic tetrameter. So there are more feet Per line. I know there are lots of jokes to be made here about like how the the Harfoots have big feet, so of course like their their poetic feet have three beats instead of two. Makes perfect sense as their feet are at least fifty percent larger than they should be. But I won't make those kinds of jokes. Instead, I will just uh, point out that it's really cool. Um, so I am I'm I am I am fascinated by the way that that moves. I think. You can see that I am at the beginning, um, and um, uh, and I think the I am at the beginning is what keeps it from sounding like Dr. Seuss. Iambic, or, sorry, anapestic tetrameter is one of Dr. Seuss's favorite meters. Um, the night before, the not the night before, well, the night before Christmas is an anapest as well, but that's not Dr. Seuss. Um, what I was thinking was was the Grinch, uh, the Grinch, the 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 the. the, the the Grinch Who Stole Christmas uh, is an anapestic tetrameter. The Sneetches is an anapestic tetrameter. Um, um, 
Uh, but the Grinch's small heart grew ten sizes that, or grew three sizes that day, right? Dun 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 dun. You know, or the Sneetches, right? For the snar, for the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars, but the plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon theirs. It's it's it doesn't sound the song Poppy's song avoids the um, anapestic tetrameter is an extremely sing-song meter mm-hmm. um, and it avoids that by that iambic foot at the beginning almost every line has an iambic foot at the beginning um, not all those who wander or wander are lost um, my legs are so short and the way is so long yes yeah. my legs are so my legs I am right my legs are so short and so the short way and is so long so. exactly exactly yeah. it's perfect a perfect representative uh, of how the song works okay. um, so it has that, that short foot at the beginning and then it flows into the anapestic meter um, and uh, anyway so I, I, I love that and I loved how that works but it took me um, uh, it took me a while like to to really kind of catch on to that because I was expecting an iambic meter and I got the iambic foot at the start right so at first I thought I was just hearing a variation right like oh it's iambic but there are some extra feet in there and I'm like no no it really is and this is this is very typical by the way I mean you, uh, normally you have to kind of like get into a song and then those characteristic lines right like the one you quoted um, mm-hmm. my legs are so short and the way is so long um, or not all those who wonder or wander are lost which is clearly I think the I mean it's it's the heart of that line is the heart of the whole yeah. song um, I mean it's like the reveal at the end of the song like it's the message finally received and everything um, but um Anyway, so uh, it's it's so it really isn't until you get thinking carefully through towards the like into like stanza three or something that you're like, oh no, that's the pattern like that. That's the fundamental yeah. pattern right there, um, and it's um, uh, it's neat. So I actually really kind of like the fact that this is not in regular Hobbit meter. Like it's not in the the same meter as the Hobbits, but. I mean, I don't know, but it feels to me very much like it's like I would create a parallel with what we've seen from the Harfoots throughout the show. They are Hobbit-esque, right? You can see like they have... Right, it's familiar. Yeah, it's familiar, but very much not the same, right? I mean, they have really done... I think it's one of the things that I love most about the Harfoot, the whole Harfoot world uh, in the show is that I think they have done a marvelous job of really doing that imagining backwards that you you have to do, right? What would a society that is going to become a Hobbit society in several thousand years, like, what would it look like, right? And, of course... Sound like. It would be defensible to say it will look nothing like it at all, right? It's going to be totally different. You're not going to recognize it even a little bit. That would be totally defensible because thousands of years, right? And yet... They want to establish continuity, right? They want they want us to be able to feel familiar with the Harfoots, and yet it has to be sufficiently different to really be able to bear the weight of years and cultural change and geographic change and everything else. Mm. Um, it's literally hobbits before they become hobbits, uh, before the word hobbit can really be applied to them at all. Um, and so, so that they did a similar thing poetically, I'm I'm loving. 
I'm loving. Like you can see, it's, there, it's 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 like the ancestor of it. Is there any way you think that's an accident? I mean, surely we've heard them talk about heroic meter and things like like we know they're aware of cadence. Like that has to be purposeful, right? I I I, I suspect so. I suspect so. I yeah. mean, I don't know if they think about it in exactly the same way, like in the same terms that I would think about it, right? So, um, I. I'm always sensitive of that when I'm doing like when I do an interpretation and somebody says, do you think the author meant that? I'm always like, OK, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, do I think exactly what I just said is exactly what was in the author's head? No, not necessarily. But do I think that something was going on here that um, like that I'm seeing something that they were, you know, that? Yes, I do. I do think I mean, that I'm always the, curious about intention just because you, you can't have it's very rare in a film or any kind of film type thing for something to be an accident like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like, I feel like there has to be an awareness, but yeah, maybe. It's oh not yeah, the no, I think there's absolutely that. an awareness, especially yeah. given this is a Hobbit walking song that we get, right? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. a, like a well-established genre of of song and poetry in the Lord of the Rings, and they know that very well, right? So they are um, uh, they are definitely building off that, um, and yes, I I I do. Um, so like for instance. I certainly think it's intentional in that. I mean, like if if we were talking to JD and Patrick, uh, and I was like, "So, this wandering day is in Anapests," like, and they would be like, "Oh, really? I didn't realize that." Like, no, they're not going to say that. Like, I do yeah, not yeah, believe yeah. that it's unintentional in that way. Um, again, do they have the same ideas that I do about it? How we can see, you know, like um, the way in which it's 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 both similar in pattern like with the tetrameter feet and with the uh the, with one i with the one iambic foot at the beginning of the line um as sort of the hint of kind of where the like you know poetic rhythm uh of hobbit song is going to go down the road um um you know would they say it in exactly the same way i don't know but yeah i definitely think there's some there's some intention there uh and it's it's really fun oh man amen moto i am I, I've been wondering that too. Are we going to see stores? Right? Is oh. this the only group of proto hobbits that we're going to get to meet? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the plans are. I mean, we know that they plan to introduce new characters down the road. I mean, like we know we're going to get Kierden. Um, we were told we we're going to get Kelleborn. So, um, you know, there's, there's. I know we're going to get new characters. That like, even though it's a large cast, it's, 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 it's going to get larger. Well. There may be some subtraction as well as addition. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're gonna lose a few as we yeah. move forward, right? Yeah. In <laughs> fact, they're gonna probably have to introduce new characters at a fair rate at some point in order to stay. Well, I was about to say to stay above water, but that would be an insensitive way to to uh, 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 insensitive metaphor to use under the circumstances. Anyway, point is, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that there will be more. Are we gonna get an entire um, new proto Hobbit culture? Right, parallel to the Harfoots. Maybe. I don't know if we'll do that much or go that far. Um, just to make sure people know what we're talking about. Um, I don't want to leave Tolkien newbies behind or make you feel self-conscious if you don't understand what, you're, what, what we're referring to. So there are the three families of proto-hobbits um, who are the ancestors of the Shire Hobbits. One is the Harfoots, uh, which they've depicted in the show or, you know, they've created the society for. The second is the Stewars, and the thir- and the third is the Falahides. Um, the Stewars, by the way, are the ones who are the ancestors of Gollum, right? Like, Gollum comes from the Stewars. And so, 
that's why, in my opinion, there's a lot of reasons to think, like, in order to set up Gollum for the future, that we may encounter some stores. Um, so, anyway, I, I think that that's, uh, um, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I, I, I feel like I scarcely dare to hope, uh, especially since I love the Harfoot so much, it would be really, really fun to meet another group of proto-hobbits. Yeah. But, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, Anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the stores will all be played by Andy Circus, JJ. Yeah, <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> but uh, but who knows? Who knows? Um, I mean, it's, it's fun to be aware of where we're going to. You know, like we yeah. know that it's kind of all leading to the start of the third age. So yes. you know, it's it's fun to plant the seeds of the things that we're currently familiar with. And won't it be interesting five years to look back and be like, oh my god, they planted that seed? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's. Um, there are lots of ways. I mean, so if we think about the really big picture with this show, right? Not only do we have to remember the five season arc, right? But I am I, I also multiple millennia arc. Yeah, we know that they're planting yeah. seeds for the third age, right? We know that they're yeah. setting things up. Um, some of which things there's. I mean, and 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 some of that is we've already seen elements of continuity that they have attempted to maintain between their world and the Peter Jackson films. I was going to say, that's the other thing I would want to point out, that it's not just continuity to Tolkien's Third Age, it's continuity to Jackson's Third Age. Yes. So, like, we know that he had some kind of adaptation liberties, but we've all kind of come to terms with the significant majority yeah. of them. So, like, that's in the public consciousness. That's an awareness that we're okay having parallels to. So having, I was going to say Amazons, I want to get away from that, J.D. Right. and Patrick's, vision of the second age leave it into Jackson's third age just makes a whole lot of sense in terms of like public awareness yes. and also makes sense Tolkienian wise because we're all taking slight liberties as we do with adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, we can see that. Um, I mean, goodness, this would be, this would be a fascinating discussion topic. Like we could have, I mean, not just for like a session, like we could have a whole, like day long conference talking about um, the relations between the Rings of Power and the Peter Jackson films. Oh my yeah. goodness, there's so yeah. many. Um, that could not be a just, whole other series. <laughs> yeah, not just like cataloging the callbacks and links, but looking at the shape of those. Like, and what did the what what does the pattern of those suggest um, mm -hmm. for uh, how they are placing the Rings of Power show in relationship to the Peter Jackson films? really really fascinating stuff um there's some places where i feel like they're um um they're really just like trying to establish a connection there are other places where i feel like they're um they're really asserting a difference right establishing a connection in order to emphasize a discontinuity mm. there are even a couple places where i have felt like they're gently teasing the peter jackson films um mm -hmm. in a sense um mm -hmm. Uh, almost, almost, um, uh, the, you're thinking of, uh, going into cause of doom, aren't you? I am thinking of going yeah, into cause of doom. I was the like, near totally quote in episode, 
in episode yeah. one, uh, two. Where yeah. they're like, oh, yeah. the horns are going to play. There's going to be a feast. And then there's not yeah. a warm welcome. The salt pork. Yeah, exactly. And the way that they're playing off the parallel scene that they're quoting from in uh, in yeah. in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring film. Um, and in that moment, I, I think they're really teasing the Peter. I mean, I yeah. think that they're, it's, uh, it's a very, it seems to me like a very gentle trolling of the Peter Jackson films uh, in some ways. Anyway, there's so much. So, yeah, it's a very complicated and rich relationship between those two. Um, but uh, but yeah, so there's those seeds planted. And then also, like, let's not forget, um, I think there are going to be other series as well. I think there are going to be other spinoff series after this, which are also going to be set up by things that are happening in the Rings of Power. Um, I don't think there's likely to be another Second Age story because they seem to be taking all of the second age stories and doing the lot basically i'm not saying that there at least individual not right things. Away. yeah i'm like at least not right away i mean this is this is the through line we have right now so exactly i wouldn't be surprised if we saw some spinoff content later but right this is the focus now right but i am thinking mostly about um the third age between you know after from the time at the end of the last alliance through to uh you know the time of the of the fellowship of the ring which is three thousand years of history and so many stories and things that they could do it is possible jj i was thinking about aldarion and arendis for instance there are there are things like that so aldarion and arendis is a story that tolkien wrote um a numenorean story about one of the early kings of numenor and his unhappy uh, relationship with his wife. Um, it's a really interesting story in lots of ways, but um, but yeah, that that kind of thing. Like, let's zoom in and tell the like personal uh, sort of drama of a couple of the characters, you know, mm-hmm. from two thousand years earlier. It's a kind of thing that we could do. Um, that that we could definitely see them doing. But there's a lot in the third age that I think they could also do. So anyway, so as I say, there's, there's, there's lots of, so when we're talking about the long game. We, we, we have to think not only of the next five seasons, but of other things. And by the way, I've heard people say, I mean, Mike drought uh, wrote a, an article about how he doesn't want to see a Tolkien cinematic universe um, with respect. And I love Mike and, and really respect him. I'm, I'm here for it. I don't I'm care. I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, <laughs> I yeah. mean, you, you think about like all the worlds we've seen adapted over time. Like, I mean, I started in Arthurian literature, so I think about the King Arthur adaptations and like, I am here for every King Arthur adaptations. Some yeah. of them are terrible and I still terrible. love talking about them, Yes, you know, because it's just yes. so neat to see what people can envision. So yeah, right. I will spend more time right. in that world, even if it's rubbish. <laughs> right. I feel the same way about 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 King Arthur films. I feel the same way about yeah. like vampire movies. Like I love yeah. Dracula and I'm interested in vampire movies and even like Come on, and, I've gone like four episodes without mentioning Twilight. Don't make me bring it up okay. again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> exactly though. There I mean, you go. There, there's there you go. there's room for interpretation in all these realms and I love the like spectrum we get with these. Yeah. So yeah, I'm here for a universe. I'm I like I get a little more protective of the things that were formative to me as a child, so I absolutely understand the yeah. pushback. You know, if somebody like they keep talking about a Goonies remake, and I'm like, ooh, that, that's my, <laughs> ooh. I, I understand that feeling, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to go watch it and buy the DVD and probably deep dive into how they made it. You know, <laughs> like I'm still going to enjoy the adaptation yeah. for what I can get from it, even if I. I'm not a fan of it. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And again, the thing that I, 
And this, I don't know, I don't know how to convey this to people who, um, and there, of course, there are bunches of people. Um, and I don't mean just trolls. I mean people who love Tolkien and feel like, you know, oh, this kind of adaptation is like doing terrible things to Tolkien and like we just need to stick to the text and I need to stand up for Tolkien. And I don't know how to convince people. Like, in my experience, and I don't just mean my own personal relationship with this and how I've worked that out over the years, though that's a story to be told too, but how every opportunity, every adaptation is a fresh opportunity to discuss the original texts. And it doesn't matter in that sense, as you were saying, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. A bad adaptation is just as good an opportunity to talk about the text and it will help you to appreciate things better. I mean, the failure of the third Hobbit film makes me understand, made me appreciate so many things about, I mean, and, and in fresh ways, like I come to not just the end of the Hobbit book, but even Tolkien's writings and thinking about the connections between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Like I come to all of that, those stories and that world building. And I came to it in a, in this fresh way that made me appreciate Tolkien's writings better by working through all of the disappointments of, um, you know, the Battle of Five Armies, which was such a horrible film. Um, and and it's fine. Like, I mean, it's more fun if it's a good adaptation right. and it's something that we can enjoy. But but the beauty is that it doesn't corrupt the original. You know, like, um, who just said they were going back to reading Silmarillion, Amen Moto. You know, like, yeah, it takes you back to the original text and you then appreciate it so much. Like, I consider it to be DVD special features all the time. Like, oh, right. I miss those so much about DVDs that I I then get so much more out of the text right. than if I hadn't, you know? So, like, going back to the text, I appreciate the broader picture of it. I guess the thing that, like, I personally get concerned about is if somebody watches Rings of Power and thinks it's terrible, then they'll never engage with Tolkien again because it's not fun for them. So, like, I'm sorry for you that that's what made your decision, but that doesn't ruin my experience. No, you know? so, it like, doesn't. And nor do I think, by the way, because uh, um, it's not just... Like, when one is thinking about, like, a defending Tolkien perspective, right? Like, I need to defend Tolkien from what the damage that's being done. Protect it. Yeah. Right. Keep in mind, so it's not the people who will watch Rings of Power and say, wow, Tolkien's awful. I'm never reading that. Like, I agree. That's sad if that happens. But how many of those people ever would have read Tolkien? Right. Yeah. How many of those people are? And then you have to weigh that on the other hand. I mean, there's there's two pens on the on the, on, the, on the, in the balance here. Right. Of the number of people who are going to uh, to watch it and read Tolkien who never would have done. Right. Um, so it's like, yeah, I, I, there may be. And there may be people who will be permanently turned off Tolkien because they dislike uh, the Rings of Power. But also, don't forget about playing the long game on that. I've known people who were turned off Tolkien because they watched the Peter Jackson films and didn't like them. Um, but who later on read, read it and was like, oh, man, what have I been? Yeah. This is so much better than, you know, yeah. than than what I didn't like about. the. And Peter then Jackson there's film. people that just don't want to be part of whatever's trending. And I get that, too. You know, you want to march to your own drum so like sure don't jump on this bandwagon now it's cool to hate on it and then you watch it 10 years later and go oh that was pretty cool yeah no right. kidding there's a reason <laughs> it was a big deal <laughs> right right exactly yeah. um yeah yeah um exactly I mean, like, so i 
yeah. here I've already mentioned Twilight once. I have to do it again. So like, you know, even when you're talking about like remediating something that already exists, like everybody loved to love Twilight when it first came out. The first movie made like $360 million. Right. Everyone loved to hate Twilight by the end of the, the series. And they, you know, broke the last one into two pieces. It was so cool to hate Twilight. Everybody was making fun of it. It was so dumb. But the last film made more than twice what the first one did. So like even though you hate it, everyone was still going to watch it. Right. <laughs> so like you still have that audience even when it's kind of a, a tricky rubbish adaptation and that's fun. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so exactly. I I so this is why again in the end, this is why I'm 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 down for the Tolkien cinematic yeah. universe. Like I'm I'm ready more adaptations rather than fewer. Now again, I would love for them more, you know, for for them to be good. I hope many of them are really good. Um, but at the end of the day, what I love is discussing Tolkien, and yeah, that is something that, and more opportunities for that will be provided. Um, I uh, hope with, you guys want us for twenty years. <laughs> right, exactly. So this is um, uh, this will be this will be fun. Um, but um, anyway, so yes, so that's there we are. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, interesting. We did I love, this song. We, okay, we we did. I was just saying. I love. We're getting like testimonials from people talking about you know how they came to the books or from the films or whatever. There's a lot of people. I mean, I have met so many people. I'll never forget a conversation I had with somebody. Um, this was a very one of the people who hated the films before they were released um, was opposed to the idea of the films and never wavered uh, in that opposition and who tried to make the argument that no like real reader of Tolkien, like no serious reader of Tolkien had ever come from the films that like, she's like, I know I don't think that the films have actually had any positive impact on Tolkien readership or, you know, that like uh, nobody who is, and I don't even, I'm not even sure exactly how he was defining real, real, uh, readers exactly. Um, but I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, I have met literally thousands of people yeah. who have, like, did, you, did you see the bestseller list? Right. But I mean, it's not only that, I mean, it's like the number of people that I have met who have become scholars. Right. Yeah. Um, and and, uh, you know, and have greatly enriched, um, you know, the world's understanding of, of Tolkien and have been a, 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 a vibrant part of the Tolkien community who first saw the films and came well, to the books that way. It's and, just like, and, like, in this, and in the same breath, I would say that about filmmaking, like the number of people I've met now that have watched the behind the scenes extended editions and all of the extra material like that yes. is what makes people creative. Right. Like learning how it's done. So. I mean, I feel like you see that even with this. We have so many people watching Rings and Realms and watching Other Minds and Hands and watching the Twitter show and watching, you know, the Barking's uh, Reddit and yeah. Nerd of the Rings YouTube and all these things to get this content because it enriches our own experience. Yes. And that's what opens the doors to creativity. If we get to engage in that community and talk about this thing that we're geeky about, I'm yeah. on board. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, so I oh, so here, here, here's another topic I wanted to hit on. Um, another topic I wanted to hit on today was a question that I got from Sparrow Alden. Many of you know Sparrow. She's been a, a, a Signum person, student, faculty member, staff for a long time. Um, Color, yeah, joy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sparrow is awesome. Um, so Sparrow, Sparrow's request 
was that I discuss the theme of conformity and nonconformity in this show so far. And as soon as she said that, I was like, ooh, there's a lot to talk about there, right? Because there are several different levels on which you could talk about um, conformity and nonconformity there. And as soon as she mentioned it, I was like, man, that's really everywhere. That's a really interesting question. Um, So if we think about it first on one level of the relationship of the individual to the society, Right. We saw this from the very beginning with with Galadriel being the nonconformist element within the elf culture. Right. Both that sense of her like her whole, you know, troop mutiny against her because she was not thinking in the same way that they were. She was in charge. Right. So it was a mutiny when she didn't conform with her group there. Right. But then, of course, we see it with Elrond and Gilgalad as she comes back to Linden. She is not conforming with the like normal elf view of things with Arondir and his relationship to the Southlanders not just you know the fact that he uh, clearly has the hots for Bronwyn but the fact that like the, his general relation his attitude towards the humans there um, which in such, such stark contrast with his watch captain there in I think it was episode one um and his watch captain, who seems to be sort of the stand-in for, like, the party line, right, of the elf watchman, right? Um, and then, of course, you have the same thing happening in um, in Numenor as well. Now, in Numenor, it gets complicated. Like, so far, you might say, like, if you just think of, if you think of, like, a Rondir and a Galadriel, you might think, like, okay, so... Um, being nonconformist, that's the that's the that's the good thing to do, right? And there because there are some stories where like the one person who thinks differently from everybody else like is the hero. That's what makes that person the hero, right? Um, you know, from like Ariel and the Little Mermaid, right through like you know every other like the, the, there's that's a that's a like think of how many Disney films right have at right. their heart like the one central protagonist character who sees the world differently from everybody else and wants something different from everybody else. Um, and by the way, you can see a similar kind of dynamic there with Nori and the Harfoots, right, where she yeah. doesn't conform to the Harfoot culture and wants to know what's beyond our wanderings, right? Mm. What's beyond the migratory round. Um, but in addition, so so I guess so we have this trend. But notice how it's already kind of internally complicated. Galadriel, in particular, is a really complicated example of this sort of nonconformity because she's not wrong. Like she is right about Sauron coming back, but she's also not right either. Like it's. Mm. Um, it is certainly not true that in Galadriel's character, we're getting merely the championing of this, you know, to say like, so not to conform, not to accept, you know, sort of the social pressures of your society and to think outside the box is the good and heroic thing, right? And that's what makes you a hero. And 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 uh, that's not how it works for Galadriel. Oh. It kind of. I mean, it's, 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 it's not simple in either way, right? Um, some of the ways in which she's not conforming are actually bad and even destructive for her herself. Um, so it's, uh, it's complicated. She's not right, but she's not wrong either. Um, so it's, it's hard. It's really complicated. And then you get oh. Numenor, right? And think of how both the characters of Muriel and the character of Elendil fit into this whole conformity, nonconformity thing, right? Think of the way that Muriel is balancing conformity in two different directions, right? Conformity with her father's vision and conformity with the with the 
you know, the mainstream culture, Farazan's Numenor, which is basically Farazan is the uh, clearly the spokesperson, also the guide, right? The, the the director of the mainstream, but 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 clearly the spokesperson for the mainstream as well. Um, uh, but um, anyway, um, so um, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, um, uh. So where do you see that fitting in with what's happening now? Are we starting to see, I don't know, seeds of that happening? Like, are are the arcs going to support, combat? So one thing, thinking, all right, one of the things that I find interesting is how in multiple, no, almost all of these, In almost all of these storylines, the sort of mainstream, the cultural mainstream against which these individual figures are sort of in contrast, right, or in conflict, it's the mainstream, the, the mainstream culture has itself been complicated or even subdivided, right? Um, what I mean by that is, again, taking a the Disney movie example, right? So many Disney princesses are differentiated by the fact that, again, like the Little Mermaid, I'll go back to that example because I already mentioned it, right? Classic example, right? Okay. Ariel is the one person under the sea who is curious about what happens on land, right? And so she is deviant within the context of her culture, and so she, but that's a good thing. But her culture doesn't change, right? That's never made comp I mean okay like people within it change like her father accepts her at the end and whatever and and there's a there's a growth that her nonconformity brings right but during the course of her nonconformity it never like the that it remains a kind of neutral background right the the mm. culture that she's deviating from through her actions she helps to bring it into a different place at the end but it Moana, itself same thing Moana same thing yeah Pocahontas, exactly same yeah thing. Pocahontas, mm -hmm. same thing. It's a very mm -hmm. common Disney uh, trajectory, right? Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I actually just saw Moana for the first time uh, a couple months ago. So I... I, I um, it's a favorite in this house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, uh, I loved it, actually. I was a big fan. Um, but <laughs> sorry, JJ, did I, should I have warned you about Little Mermaid spoilers? Yeah, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> anyway... Um, but think about, so think, for instance, uh, giving two examples. Think about the Harfoots and think about the Southlanders. Southlanders first, right? So you've got a Rondir who has this within the context of his local culture, right? Like the elf, the elf wardens and guardians of, of that region. He has this deviant outlook towards uh, the people, which is... Um, sort of crystallized in, or sort of almost personified in his relationship with Bronwyn, right? And by the way, that's one of the things that I have loved about that storyline is that they have made his relationship with, rather than being like, we're going to place them in this place, just as a premise for like the romantic longing between these two characters, right? They have almost taken that, I mean, it was one of the things we noticed at the very beginning that, like, we're starting completely in Medea's race with Bronwyn and Arondir, right? Like, I was totally expecting we were going to get, like, the first illicit longing glances between the two of them. And then by well, the end of season there. one, they went, no, yeah. like, at the very beginning, they're like, they're there. I like right? you. And, yeah. More or less <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. Anyway, it's an established thing, right? And so how it seems to be functioning in some ways is it, it, it's taken on this almost like uh, allegorical 
dimension to it mm. where like his connection with Bronwyn is sort of like his it, it sort of maps onto um, or kind of personifies his relationship with the men of the Southlands in general right I mean I felt like his his speech um, the speeches he was delivering to Bronwyn about her people right um, the speech or or to to Theo like the speech about the knives and whispers Right. Um, mm-hmm. Where he was talking about like hearing the voices behind the whispers and uh, getting to know the hands that were holding the knives. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you can see this sort of like generalizing of uh, of his. I mean, again, it's yes, like he has a personal relationship with Bronwyn. Um, but again, you can it, it begins to feel like the relationship with Bronwyn is itself, as I say, a sort of personification of his overall relationship with the humans, which is cool, which is really interesting to have, to see a show which is taking a romantic relationship. How many times have we seen shows where it's like, all like everything that is happening in this show is just like an excuse for the romance, right? Like, like we're doing this in order to create a circumstance in which this romantic relationship can happen because that's what we really care about. Um, and this show is doing almost the reverse with that, which I'm loving, loving that. But anyway, um, so but but notice what's happening in the society. So we've got the the, the society his. Um, the culture against he was which which he was moving is gone. Like they all died, right? He's now the sole spokesperson. So it's doing this like different thing. And then we have this Southland society itself, which is choosing, which is split between the followers of Waldrig and the followers of Bronwyn, right? And so we have this, um, we have instead of uh, a narrative trajectory where like in The Little Mermaid, right? You have the default culture that she's buried in, right? And then she departs from that culture, right? She departs from that culture and goes over here, right? And right. then eventually creates a bridge between the two, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right? That's that sort of the, that, that general shape. Instead of that, um, we have the whole story is about, the, like, he remains stationary, right? He remains there within that culture, and that whole culture is changing around him, right? And that's really cool. That's really, really interesting. Now take Nori and the Harfoots, Right. She, too, was introduced at the beginning as this deviant kind of little mermaid Moana figure, right, who didn't mm-hmm. fit in with her culture mm-hmm. because she has these bigger, grandiose ideas and, and, and desires like inborn within her. And interest yeah. in the wanderers, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then what happens, right? Then she meets the stranger. And it told it. I was expecting. I will admit. I was. Exp- I was assuming they were going to follow like the Little Mermaid Moana line, right? Mm-hmm. And that she was going to um, when this when they had the stranger come in and like we had her like trial, not exactly trial, but the really brief and unofficial uh, or informal, I should say, it was official but informal trial uh, of Nori there at the end of episode three. Three. It was three. Yes, it was three. Four was the one, the one without Harfoots. Um, at the end of episode three, um, I was totally expecting her to get decaravaned. I'm like, okay, so that's so. This is now what is going to divide because she, you know, it was it was it was interestingly clear that she was not ready to just leave. She wasn't just going to hair off on her own, right? Um, it was a part of her fundamental world, uh, like world concept, worldview that you stay with the clan, right? She was not really deviating from that, even though she wanted more uh, and other things. So I was like, okay, so this is going to be the traumatic moment where she's going to be severed from her society and she's going to be pushed off 
right? And she's going to end off on this, you know, um, uh, Little Mermaid slash Moana, um, uh, uh, you know, journey, right? Um, actually, it'd be much more like Moana because she'd be like on the journey with like the um, uh, the big bumbling mystical magical character, <laughs> right? Um, right. Uh, so whose name I'm totally blanking on from Moana, by the way. I only saw it once. Uh, make the, way, make way. I can sing a song. The but, character um, put, anyway, whatever his name is. Um, the, um, Rock. the Rock's character, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Maui, thank you, of course. Maui. Maui. Yeah, Maui. Thank Maui. God. Yeah. Um, so, right, so, so I, was, I, was, I was ready for, like, Nori and the Stranger to go off on a journey together, like, like uh, quite like, actually, uh, um, uh, Moana and Maui. Um, and, um, but we didn't get that. Instead, what happened? Instead, he gets incorporated into the clan, right? And this is, and that progressed then significantly in episode five. Now, I know we end, we ended episode five with tension and Nori's, you know, uh, Nori's doubts and, and Nori's fears, right? At the very end, you know, the last we saw of Nori, she was running away in fear from the stranger. I think there's going to be some movement further, but that scene, that very scene began with her coming in and being like, I've never seen them accept an outsider like this, right? So yeah. um, so once again, we were seeing some evidence that the 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 the, the default culture against the one person against against which the one per like with which the one person was not conforming, right? Um was beginning to progress and change. Like that was the story, right? Um anyway, really um really interesting. Uh so um uh David Pertle asks if I were going to cast Dwayne Johnson in a Tolkien role, what would it be? Well, I can tell you where we cast him in some film because we did. Um, no, we did. We cast him in film film. Um, wait for it, Tolkis. We cast him as Tolkis of the of the of the Valar. One, still one of my favorite castings. He has to be. I mean, he time. has to be godlike, so that makes yeah. Yeah, we yeah. totally cast him as Tolkis. It was phenomenal. Great casting. He will do a great job as Tolkis when great. we uh, finally get rights to actually film uh, and a budget uh, to actually film it. Uh, it's it's perfect. It's, it's just perfect. Loved it. Um, and um, uh, yeah, everything oh, like the the, the combination of like brawn and laughter. It was just like yeah, it was that was almost easy. Uh, really, that casting was almost easy. Um, <laughs> Uh, my very yeah. favorite, my very favorite casting. It's my second favorite casting in film film of all time. My favorite casting is a Tolkien character that people might not know. The character of Rog from Gondolin. Um, Rogrim um, uh, is a, uh, uh, a character who is like, he uses a huge hammer and he, uh, 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 you know, dies tragically. Anyway, I'm a big fan of. If you know, you you have to know the Book of Lost Tales version of the Fall of Gondolin to know who Rog is. Um, and we cast we cast Rog. Uh, we cast. Uh, um, I'm forgetting his name. The guy who played the Punisher in the Marvel series uh, oh, as Rog, and I great. I loved it. I'm like, oh yeah, because we we even we have him like being captured and tortured in Angband yeah. and everything, and then he escapes, and and I'm like, oh man, yeah, it's phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, but um, 
John Barenthal. Yes, thank John you. Barenthal. Yeah. I was yeah. like ham. No, not ham. Yeah, yeah John yeah. Barenthal. John Barenthal. Yeah, yeah. I actually tweeted at him uh, to announce the casting when we. When oh, I was excellent. so excited about it. Yeah. So I, I told him. I don't know that he was paying attention, but uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll get back. There to we it. go. Yeah. Anyhow, so so uh, so back to conformity and nonconformity. So is, isn't that interesting? How again, instead of having like the Harfoot culture, just like remain unchanged, right, and have Nori splitting off and using that, using the Harfoot culture as like a background, like a backdrop, yeah. right, for her own journey and her own development, which maybe then would come back and inform and, 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 and change, again, like in Moana, right, um, uh, having you know, this, this ultimate sort of growth within the society as a whole, right, um, instead, it's shifting, right, from the... Mm. Um, uh, from the very start. Anyway, it's, they're doing some really interesting things. Then we get Numenor, right? Oh, man. Okay, so in Numenor, whoo, here's, a, here's one of those things that I wanted to talk about in Rings and Realms but didn't get a chance because it was like this really tall, s- s- tiny, small thing, right? Um, it's funny that I accidentally said, I was going to say tiny and small, and I accidentally said tall, but the right. real irony is that I said that as a segue into talking about Elendil the Tall. So there we are. That was probably uh, uh, like a Freudian, Freudian talking slip. thing. But a anyway, okay, slip. so <laughs> it's a, a small, tiny thing and yet tall because it's about Elendil. Um, I loved the scene with Elendil and Isildur when Isildur yeah. comes up to Elendil and tries to get him to bump him up the list and Elendil shuts him down, right? Um, here's I think Elendil what I, is potentially one of my favorite characters. Oh, so good. So good. Um, so good. So um, what I um, here's what I loved about that. Essential to Elendil's character. Um, essential to Elendil's character is his love for Numenor. Um, mm. I think that a lot of people first associate Elendil with, as like the leader of the faithful. Right. And so imagine him in a kind of like leader of rebel underground. I've heard people express disappointment that Elendil seems to be just towing the party line, even pressuring his children, trying to get his children to stop with the whole faithful thing, right? And just do the days. Numenorean thing. He can't yeah. be outspoken it's, it's, yet. It's very early days. Yeah. But but again, the most important thing, that's not who Elendil was. Yes, he was faithful. And we see evidence that Elendil in the show is faithful. His no, his knowledge of Elvish, right? His That marvelous, marvelous glance um, exchange between him and, or gaze, I should say, between him and Muriel when the petals start falling, right? Like, mm-hmm. we know that his heart is with the faithful, and yet he loves Numenor. He yeah. loves Numenor. Um, and this is, this is essential. Like, if Elendil is not after the fall of Numenor, like, we cannot have... The show will have failed in the Numenor line. Like the Numenor plot line, that is. If when Numenor falls, everybody cheers, right? Mm-hmm. Pray the bad guys are gone, right? Oh, there's like that whole evil Numenorean culture thing, and they're doing, they're horrible, and Farazan's terrible, and we all want to see him get his comeuppance and everything. But but then, you like, basically, if if the Kingsmen, if like Farazan's party in Numenor is like the is like you know the the empire the Sith Empire right mm-hmm. and the faithful are like the Rebel Alliance. If that's mm-hmm. how we as viewers are instructed to align ourselves with that, the result of this will be that the end the the downfall of Numenor will feel like the end of the Return of the Jedi. 
Right. Um, right. When the empire, to- when the you know the emperor dies and the emperor, the empire topples. Sorry, spoilers. And um, and we've had a few years. <laughs> right. If you haven't seen Return of the Jedi, it's nobody's fault but your own. Um, Correct. Uh, but that's that should not be how we feel. Like, or mm-hmm. let me say this another way: if we feel that way about Numenor when it falls, then our experience as viewers will be totally alien to the experience that Tolkien describes Elendo, Isildur, Anarion, and the rest of the of the Dune of the Dunedain having. Um, it is so striking, especially in Tolkien's later Numenorean writings, like the stuff that he wrote um, while he was writing the Lord of the Rings. This this stuff in 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 Volume Nine, uh, mostly Volume Nine, Volume Ten, also of the History of Middle Earth, um, um, the Notion Club Papers era, and stuff. Anyway, he emphasizes so much the longing, the sadness, the tragedy. They call themselves exiles when they. Uh, come to Middle-earth. Like, they feel like they have been banished from Numenor, and they spend the rest of their lives lamenting the fall of Numenor and longing for the homeland that they have lost. Um, and we'll lose it. Um, we'll lose it if um, if we only see Elendil as rebel leader. He clearly loves Numenor. Um my favorite Elendil line, the line was, um, I don't know if I'll be able to quote it exactly, but remember he says to Isildur that um, Isildur has spent his life feigning loyalty to the traditions yeah. of this isle, right? Um, uh, whereas these other people, and he's pointing out at the rest of the people at work there they've in the harbor, the work. right? Right. They have, they have, they have served lived it. Lived it. Right. They've yeah. lived it. They have served it. Um, and that matters to him, right? yes. The fall of New, you know, Numenor, Numenor is going is it's it's already headed downhill and it's going to head down it's going to more rapidly head downhill, um, but I I think I see this as evidence that they are really going to build at least going to attempt to build the fall of Numenor as the kind of tragedy um, that we see in the books and I think that that is. So important. I think that that's oh. I, and I'm so I was so encouraged. That's why like that one little scene, I was like, oh yes, like because we're seeing really fi- like again the Muriel gaze, one of my favorite bits. Like we're seeing lots of reasons to think Elendil is one of the faithful, and Elendil has we, we know where his heart is. We can see where his heart is when he is going to be forced to the choice right between Numenor and the Valar. He's going to choose the Valar. He's going to choose loyalty. Um, but that choice is going to rip him up, right? That is going to be a terrible, terrible choice. And I love that. Like I, that is, it's, that's, that's exactly what it's, what it should be. That's what makes a good story. The stuff that really pulls at your heart. So I guess one, that's one of the things I've, I've been struggling with a little bit is that that doesn't, that kind of depth and connection doesn't exist everywhere, but when it hits, mm-hmm. it hits hard. Yeah. But I wish it was everywhere. There's definitely parts that I'm like, but I don't care about that person. And, you know, <laughs> like, I know we're building to a big battle. I've seen the trailers. Yeah. I, really? There's a big battle? Okay. I guess it's time. It just doesn't feel, they've, but they've spent so much time building up some of these other things that we know we're going to pay off Yeah. in such a beautiful way that I'm glad for that. I, I hope it comes into the other parts too. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things. Maggie, you'd be interested in this. I know we're running out of time, but um, time. 
Exactly. One of the things that we were discussing again at Mountain Moot this weekend, um, Sarah Brown came on for a little while and led a little discussion on this. Um, well, a little, led a little discussion on the Rings of Power and we ended up talking about this. Um, was the way in which season one of the Rings of Power has been very much like a mystery box show, mm. right? Where like one yeah, of the primary... What's movements. under the hatch? Yeah, one of the move. You know, the a a a lost esque mystery box, right? Um, where one of the things that's kind of moving viewers through the show is the mysteries, right? Who's Sauron? Where's Sauron? Who's the stranger? Right? Um, all that kind of thing. Um, and the question we were discussing was: Do we think that's going to continue, or that's going to tail off? And I was arguing. Well, I certainly would argue that it should, and I think it will tail off, actually. I don't think they're going to rely on... I think that my suspicion is that they're using that kind of mystery box approach to season one as a way to draw people in, right? Um, And then I think they're not going to be relying upon mystery, um, you know, in the same, you know, the... Like, tune in next time to get more data on who, like, that character truly is. Like, I don't think that's mm-hmm. going to happen. I think most of the mysteries are going to be solved or close to it by the most of the mysteries we now have. And there might be... I'm not saying there's not going to be suspense. I'm not going to say there's not going to be twists. But um, but just having the so much of the momentum of the show yeah. being relying upon um, uh, this kind of mystery box stuff, I, I think... Um, I think I think and hope that it's going to tail off. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they have to have that for pacing. They have to have that to kind of drive us through to the next point. So there's a little bit of the what's in the box because that's a, a trope yeah. we're familiar with. So sure. yeah, let's let's structure around something that we know is a bit of a hook, but let's structure it smartly and have some elements that people are going to recognize and we'll have the answers to that but we're going to lay some groundworks for some bigger what's in the boxes you know like i think it's just going to start to assume that we're comfortable in the world we're in so they don't have to have i don't think it's a gimmick i i think that word is dangerous when you're talking about film language but they don't have to have these familiar tropes to hang things on will be on board they can then get a little bit more sophisticated as seasons two three four happen i hope that's the plan um, One of the I, things I was asked. Yeah, no, um, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just asked earlier, like who I don't care about. It's not that I don't care about them. I can just. I feel like you can just tell that some care has been given to some plot lines and a little, maybe not less than others. It's not like they're ignoring it, but there are. I mean, like Bronwyn, I want to care about her so intensely, and she's making these decisions that I'm just not reactive to at all. I have no emotion to Bronwyn or Arendir to their relationship, to their leading the troops. It just feels like, okay, that's a thing that's happening. Whereas when, you know, Elrond and Durin come on the screen, I'm pumped, bring it, you know, like (laughs) I'm here for that. That's what I want to feel with each of these people. And I didn't feel that way with Jackson's trilogy right away. There were, there were characters. I didn't feel that with Tolkien's stories right away. There were chapters I was just thumbing through as fast as I could because I wanted to get to the bits with Sam and Frodo because that's a bit that I was really interested as a 10 year old. So We have those moments, but I do think there's a, a lack of development with some of the characters that when something happens that's super dramatic, I don't care. And that's right. a shame because I should right. care, you know? Right. Right. 
Right. But this is what happens when you have 118 speaking roles named characters. <laughs> right. We, we can't care about all of them. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And there isn't enough time to develop every narrative in the same way and to the same extent. I mean, as you say, uh, with um, I felt like a, I feel like one of the reasons why, because I, I agree with you, Bronwyn is another character that I'm I am interested in. But my in, my interest is mostly abstract. Right. Like yeah. when in episode four, we got no Harfoots. I felt it. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah. man, I I miss Nori. I miss Nori. Bring Nori back. Right. Um Whereas, like, I I don't feel that way about Bronwyn's and I, character. And I struggle with some of the elements of Bronwyn's. Like, I, I know we're running out of time, but I really want to know, like, you know, the sword hilt we've barely talked about. And, like, it really bugs me that we had that whole speech in front of the crowd, which I've also seen conversations on Twitter about how they've just recreated that crowd and just, like, picked images and replanted it and shifted faces around yeah there's some janky cg in some of these scenes and that's a shame too because that takes us out of the narrative as well so it's a shame that in some scenes it's incredible in other scenes you're going wait a sec but the fact that they have this i'd say to be fair in real time i was not seeing well we're a little distracted by other things in real time too (laughs) so but like I, i i i guess i was just a little bit frustrated at the convenience factor again we're like Oh, we have the sword hilt. Well, that's scary. I'm literally standing in front of the stone wall, but I'm just going to move the ivy aside. And look, there it is. There's there's so many of these moments that I'm just like, again? So I, I guess to me, that's a pacing issue that I feel like there needs to be a little bit more of a buildup to have that pay off because it doesn't mm-hmm. pay off for me yet. But we're looking at this very differently too. So like it could very easily pay off for somebody yeah. else. And I'm, me, I, I'm, 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 I'm willing to be patient on that as well. I mean, yeah. it may, yeah. it may just be that, that you know, the momentum might. Uh, yeah. Um, and I don't uh, point these things out as failings to the story. It's just like, well, yeah, there's things that I'm aware of, but there were yeah. things I'm aware of when I read Tolkien. Yeah. That happens. <laughs> you, you were reminding me of this fun experience I had in college when I finally, um, uh, there was this uh, woman who I finally convinced to read The Lord of the Rings summer before our senior year. Not my wife, uh, but a close friend of my wife's, actually. Good caveat. Uh, And just to make sure, it's not that kind of autobiographical story. Anyway, so in the summer before senior year, she finally read The Lord of the Rings. And we were talking, I, I made a reference to it later. I made a reference to Aragorn later on. And she was like, who? I'm like, Aragorn? And she was like, don't remember. She was like, I, she's like, I was like, I was totally there for the Sam and Frodo story, but the, I don't really remember. And then, and then my wife, who was in the room at the time, says, "He was the guy who dissed Eowyn. And she was like, "Oh, him? Yeah, all right, I remember. Okay, yeah, yeah, him, I remember." <laughs> anyway, but we it's like we all remember this differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. I, I was, I was just fascinated there. I was like. Yeah. Okay. Or, like it's, I mean, somebody, like when I said the same in front of it, somebody commented, oh, funny, I skipped through the same in front of it to get to the Aragorn bit. To each their own. Exactly. You know? like, right. Yeah. And that's no, how I feel it's... about this. Like, I'm struggling with Bronwyn, but that doesn't mean somebody else isn't loving Bronwyn and struggling with Durin. Great. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, exactly. I um anyway, anyway, so I it's yeah, the different people it things resonate differently and it's all it's all it's all good. It's all yeah. good. Um anyway, um yeah, so we're out of time. What I felt like that was a, one thing that I was leaving unsaid that I wanted to come back to. Did it involve um, the hilt? Because I do kind of want to know what you think about the hilt. Um Or is that opening a box? 
No, it wasn't about the hilt. Though you're right, we should talk about the hilt. Um, uh, I was I going to talk about Bronwyn. No, I wasn't. And again, I don't dislike Bronwyn at all. I, I, the, what, I want exactly, to love Bronwyn. Exactly I what want you said. Right. Yeah. Exactly what you said is exactly how I feel. Like, I am. I'm really interested whenever she comes on screen. But my interest is very different from that. Like when Duran and Disa come on screen, I'm just like, like, hooray, I know this is going to be awesome. Right. I can't wait. Right. Whereas right. with every time Bronwyn comes on the screen, I'm always like, maybe now is the time I'm going to like, you know, yeah. find something to really latch on to with her character. And it's anyway. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Neil, you're right. Duran's Bane. I think that might have been it. That I was going to talk about. Maybe. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Convinced. Indirectly. Indirectly. Okay. Sorry. It's going to not, <laughs> I'm not going to torturously explain my. I feel like of this episode of Other this. Minds and Hands is very similar to this episode of Rings and Realms. We're just. Yeah. Not, not Rings and Realms. Um, or, Rings um, of Power. Rings We're of just... Power. Yeah. Kind of all over the place. Um, okay. No, no, no. So, all right, 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 right. Okay. The thing that I was. Right. It was about to finishing up the mystery box conversation. And what I was saying was to, the thing that I that I take most heart by is their choice to reveal the wave and the sinking of Numenor in episode four. Right. Um, instead of trying to simply maximize like suspense and the unknown and like things that could be wrecked by spoilers. Right. Instead, they chose the other path of like, you know what's going to happen to Numenor, but how is it going to come about, right? right. And that when Numenor finally does sink beneath the waves, um, instead of being like, shock! Oh, I can't believe I never saw this coming! Instead, it's going to be this final fulfillment of what we have been dreading and anticipating all the way along. Um, and that's a totally different way to... Um, uh, that's a totally different way to do storytelling, right? To do, mm -hmm. to do, you know, plot development. The fact that they have laid, they've planted that seed, right? That like in the Numenor story, they're going to go in that direction rather than in the like surprise. Oh, you didn't know that was going to happen way. That's one of the things that really encourages me that they are going to move away uh, from the, uh, uh, from the mystery box approach. But yeah. Um, Anyway, so Neil, the reason that is connected to Duran's Bane in my head, I like the Balrog reveal, quasi Balrog reveal. Anyway, the vague uh, association in a fable between the Balrog and Mithril and uh, Khazad Doom uh, felt to me like it's beginning to point in that direction too. And then they're not going to like try to spring the Balrog on us um, out of the shadows uh, for. Um, uh, if indeed they're going in the Doran's Bane direction, which um, a part of me, I, I have to admit my very, very first reaction, I was actually distracted uh, within the context of the first time the whole song of the roots of the Hifaigwir was shown because I was distracted by the presence on screen of a Balrog. And I'm like, are we going to see that scene from the trailer so that I can say that like, look, this is what, in fact, it's not Doran's Bane, right? Or, or it might be, but it's not like the emergence of Doran's Bane. Um, it's just, uh, you know, the trailer was just pointing to this moment all along. So, phew. Anyway, that was my very first thought. And so I was distracted by that. But anyhow. <laughs> all right. But we're late. 
and uh, I gotta, I gotta, 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 gotta let you go to sleep eventually before 5 a.m. Exactly. I'm probably not going to make the live watch party, but if I'm up at five, I'll see you. Okay. Yeah. Send me a message if you're up at five and we'll include you. If not, that's right. We've got six It was really fun to watch it live with everybody. That was a real experience, but that's a, that's a tough window for me to get six hours. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Episode six. Hey, we take one minute to say quick predictions of who we think episode six is going to focus on what we're going to mostly see. I feel like I have inside info, but I don't, but just because I just watched the thing that just dropped on Instagram with Theo, I feel like Theo is going to be a big old focus on this one. Right. Right. I hope so. That would be good. That would be, that would be a a lot. I mean, right now he's just an angry kid who found a sword and made a tough decision. So yeah, that'd be interesting to get more of him. It would be. I also want to see another side of Galadriel. I feel like we're starting to see glimpses. Yes. You know, when she had that moment of, I can't stop, that felt like a real vulnerable moment. Yes. I want to see more sides than just angry Galadriel. So I know we're about to see her going to war, but... There was a real step forward there. But actually, I think her going to war um, is likely to be a good step forward for her, actually. Um, See her accomplishing the thing that she wanted to accomplish and yet... Um, you know, see where that's yeah, going to take her. Yeah, fulfilling the role and kind of encountering that. And I also yeah. just need to do this. <laughs> so that's why he's behaving so well. <laughs> Did you guys notice how quiet it's been? I'll take it. Yeah, yeah other predictions, go. I don't really have anything massive because, you know, I'm, I'm just not sure where we're going with it, but it sure seems yeah. like we're culminating into a battle. I find it fascinating that they're doing press screenings and ticket sales for this episode in key cities. Yeah. So marketing wise, you're like, well, they think something big is happening. And we were yeah. told episodes five or six. So I'm assuming episode six is the one they really meant. Yeah. So I feel like big things are going to happen in this episode. Yeah, me too. My, we'll I'm see. just hoping for more Harfoots. Uh, I definitely don't want to leave Nori. I felt bad because that happened like halfway through the episode and then we never came back to it. And um, it yeah. And it was kind of disconcerting because she's been so understanding. I'm, yes. I'm I like shock. I understand fear. I was surprised yeah. by. Excuse yeah. Me. Yeah, exactly. So I, 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 I mean, I, I felt like I can understand her reaction. I just, I don't think she's going to stay there. And I, yeah, I I don't want to stay there either. I don't want to stay there. Yeah. So I definitely, they don't have to be like the A plot of, uh, of this episode, but I definitely would love to um, Mm -hmm. get a little bit of resolution there and a little bit more sense of where, of where that, of where that goes. But anyway. All right. Um, Yeah. The stranger finally healing poor Largo, whose ankle I've been expected to get healed for, like I expect that to happen in episode, episode three, uh, yeah. and yeah, yeah, exactly, and probably battles as well. But but if that had happened had episode three, then we wouldn't have this new tension, and we wouldn't have the bonding with the stranger, and you know, all of those things about falling behind and taking their wheels. I mean, we learned a lot by him having a broken foot. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah. But um, okay, all right. 
I'll stop procrastinating. Call it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, so, folks, don't forget to tune in to. Uh, we're gonna. I'll do the live watch party again on Twitch. Um, I'll probably do it only. On, I accidentally streamed it everywhere last time. Didn't mean to do that. That was a mis- That was user error. Um, um, so it'll be just on the Signum University Twitch channel. Twitch.tv/signumu is where we'll do the watch party, um, and then discussion afterwards, where hopefully I'll be l- less. Uh, flabbergasted than I was at the end of last week's episode. Um, I couldn't even comprehend. I was like, nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So anyway, so we'll do that tonight. And then t- uh, t- it is tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow on Friday, um, we will have our Twitter reaction show, uh, Maggie and I, at noon on Friday on my Twitter account. It, so at Tolkien Prof. And it is just us tomorrow. So yeah, we're, it'll be just us tomorrow. Pretty- which is a shame because we always love having the cast there, but we're also kind of pumped to just have like a pure reaction to this episode because it sounds like yes. it's going to be a pretty epic episode. Yeah, yeah. Time to talk and react is going to be good too. Um, man, those shows are so short. Um, but anyway, okay, yeah. So then that's going to, and then I'm going to be joining the Twitch, the official Twitch watch party um, on Prime Video UK's Twitch channel. Um, that starts at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and then I'll join in. I, I won't watch the episode with them, but I'll join in at the end of the episode to answer their questions and talk with them there. So that will be tomorrow. And then so we'll this have ends episode the programming six. for uh, episode five. And that's here it. And begins the programming for episode six. <laughs> Yes, and I don't, I'm not sorry to be saying that. Um, as, I mean, honestly, it was one of my primary first reactions after watching episode five. It wasn't that I strongly disliked it. I mean, it was, I was having a hard time processing it all. But, the, but I was like, this is going to be a rough week. <laughs> was the main thing that I was thinking after episode five. Because I was you knew like, the uh, reactions were going to be strong. And yes. you still managed to do Rings and Realms in under two hours. And yes. I, I mean, I was told to make my adaptation segment like five to 10 minutes, I think. And it was a solid 20. So I'm like, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We try, yeah. guys, but we don't. Yeah. 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 It's all oh, good. This is great. All right. Thanks, guys, so much. And, Thanks, and everybody. for everybody that's new to this, like it has been so brilliant for us to kind of have this new community to share this with. So thank you for tuning in, and I hope it's been helpful. But stay tuned, and we'll uh, join you for episode six. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. Take care. <laughs>